Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Stefan Allen and he's a very good friend of mine, a community builder, a comedian and a very thoughtful person about the art of creating art. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. We talk about self-diagnosis, the pros and cons of self-diagnosis and sort of group identity stuff. It's a really fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it because I always love having a chat with Stefan. It's one of the great parts of the fringe for me is bumping into Stefan and having cups of tea. And uh, so I'm I'm really pleased to give you a little insight into that part of um, my kind of fringe. That's all I have to say. If you are in Edinburgh, come see Twist at the Underbelly Bristow Square. If you are not in Edinburgh, Keep listening to The Gargle. Keep listening to Tea with Alice. Support my podcasts on patreon.com slash Alice Fraser. That is a one-stop shop for all of my stand-up special podcasts and blogs. If you go to the About page, I know some people have found it difficult to find the links to all of my podcasts and all of my live shows. If you go to the About page of my Patreon, that's where you find all of my podcasts and specials and everything for free that I have for free and everything for sale that I have for sale. That's the best place to go other than alicefraser.com. Obviously, you can go there and buy stuff too or tweet me at alliterative or X me or I'm on blue sky now. You know, where are we? Where are any of us? Also, buy my book unbound.com and type in Alice Fraser because I guarantee you will not spell Dancy Lagarde correctly the first time you try I made it up and even I didn't spell it right the first time I tried. So go to unbound.com and take your chances with Dancy Lagarde or Alice Fraser and um, pre-order a copy of the book. It is due from me to them at the end of September, so it'll be due from them to you before the end of the year. Very exciting for me. Um, I hope it's very exciting for you. Unbound.com is the place to go for that. That's enough plugging. I think. I'm doing live gargles on the 15th and 22nd of August if you're in Edinburgh. Again, if you are not in Edinburgh, that is okay. My plan is to put out Kronos and Twist together as a double because I was planning on putting Kronos out last year, but the edit of it that I got from the person who filmed it was not what I wanted, so I'm having to, um, I got had to get the master files and re-edit it. So they'll both be coming out after the festival this year. I'm hoping to film Twist towards the end of the festival and edit edit Kronos during the festival so that they come out as a double after the festival because they are thematically linked. Ooh, spoilers alert if you haven't seen any of them. Otherwise, of course, my weekly writers' meetings are available every Sunday. My weekly salons are Monday, and the book clubs are irregularly on Fridays. I'm also doing a couple of live salons while I'm in Edinburgh, if you're in Edinburgh. That's all. That's all from me for now. I'll talk to you again next week. You're having tea with Alice. Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Stefan Allen. Stefan, who are you and what are you drinking? Uh, I am a stand-up comedian. I'm drinking, well, I'm going to start with this chocolate milkshake, but I also have an orange juice, which I'm going to have afterwards. To me, that feels like a bold choice mm. in the realms of brushing your teeth after having orange juice. I, I don't know why <laughs> milk and orange juice seems like a bad combination to me. Well, I, th- I think. But I'm about to eat a Terry's chocolate orange. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm 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 a hypocrite. <laughs> um, I remember one year. Uh, uh, we're in Edinburgh at the minute. Did we mention that? Um, wh- yes. One year, I, I brushed my teeth. And then left the house. And to my mind, once you've left the house, everything's reset. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea that, um, oh, I've just brushed my teeth continues to be true, didn't occur to me. I bought um, like a bar of chocolate, just a sort of normal milk chocolate. Um, but the, but it, it tasted of mint because of the brushing of my teeth. And I thought, oh, actually, that's very nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when I just told friends about it, they were like, that's, that's gross. What are you doing? You just invented mint chocolate. Yeah. Free mint chocolate. I've just minted up a normal chocolate. <laughs> Imagine if mint were more expensive than normal chocolate. <laughs> oh, yeah. How great you would be there. <laughs> I've got an invention that has no purpose. What but a that's saving. Okay. <laughs> um, you may hear some background noise. It's because we're in my dressing room at the underbelly Bristow Square and there is a musical happening next door, which is a one-woman musical 
where a lady travels with her personified OCD and codependency on a road trip to get back with her ex-girlfriend. I hear the last half of it every night when I come in before my show. Um, I love a show that when you describe it, um, sounds like something someone would say contemptuously when they are inventing <laughs> a hypothetical Edinburgh show. It is. It does have that sound to it. It sounds like a thing that could only happen here. But one of the things I love about Edinburgh are the things that could only happen here. Mm. And so I'm glad that there is such a thing as a one-person, yeah. one-woman road trip show where she travels with her personified OCD on a, a doomed quest to get back with her ex-girlfriend <laughs> with whom she was codependent. Like, what a great thing. Yeah. I think maybe that's a problem with that type of humour is because, and this is very true in stand-up comedy, so much of stand-up is going, hey, this thing, it's ridiculous. What's the deal with that? And, um, you know, that's fine if you're trying to get laughs in a room and that's your job. But I think the type of comedian who's always like that and can't sometimes go, oh, this thing is really weird and that's wonderful. Yes. Well, the idea that you have to be deconstructive de or negative, I, th I think is quite an old idea in stand-up now. Mm. There is room now for joyous stand-up. Though th That said, a lot of my show this year is about the show that I don't want to be doing. Yeah. Which is always something that I play with, of course. I do, like, the rhetorical technique of saying what I'm not going to do yeah. while doing the thing or as a way of sort of shielding the fact that I'm actually doing that thing or uh, indicating to those in the know that that is actually what I'm doing without explaining it explicitly. Yeah. Um, so in this show, for example, there's a bit that I feel a little bit uncomfortable about doing where I... Mm, more or less make fun of a kind of show about motherhood. Mm. And it's it's a tricky line to walk because it's not a bad show. Yeah. And it's done well by talented mm. people, as I say in the show. It's just not the kind of show that I want to do because yeah. I am relentlessly contrarian, because yeah. that is the expectation that when you have a baby, you'll do... I mean, there's a few different um, iterations of this joke in the show, but it starts with talking about you know, the millennial motherhood show of, like, who gave me a baby I can barely pay my taxes. That's yeah. not the show that I want to do. It's not a show that I've got any desire to do. But I equally don't want someone to come in do, who, who is doing that show, yeah. who's heard, oh, Alice has got a show about motherhood too, to sit mm. in the audience and feel targeted because yeah. that would be the worst. Yeah. I, I don't want anyone to feel like... And it's not, it's not that that show is a bad show. Yeah particularly if it's done well, which, yeah. of course, it can be done well. But, yeah, I really almost always resent being categorised as anything, even if it's the thing I am. Yeah, yeah. It, I think this is something I think a lot about with bisexuality. I'm bisexual, so um, I talk about that on stage. That's um, and, and, and I have, you know... I would say sort of most of my sort of close friendship groups um, are queer friendship groups, um, predominantly queer people. And, you know, it, like in that case, I love sort of, you know, sort of making identity statements about my bisexuality. Um, you know, <laughs> so, so, like someone, you know, will, will mention some actor and say, do you think that person's hot? And I'm like, of course I think they're hot. I'm bisexual. What do you take me for? Um, you know, that's a fun thing to live up to. But then it's very different when there are people in your space that have a preconception of bisexuality that isn't the fun one that I want it to be. <laughs> so I, th I think that there are times where I really love categorization because I feel it gives me like in-group membership, uh, but only on my terms. Yeah, I think I am uncomfortable even with positive in-group membership. Yeah. It makes me uncomfortable mm. to be in a clique in a way that, I, you know... I don't know if it is just a preemptive strike of the fear of being kicked out of a group mm. um, or sort of not living up to the standards of a group or feeling pressure to live up to the standards of a group, all of things which I, all, all of which are things that I don't want. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've, I have just a, yeah, a deep discomfort with it even when it would make my life easier. Like, I don't particularly enjoy being booked on an all-women's mm. lineup, 
and even though when I'm doing the show, yeah. I like what it does, which is that it it takes away actually it it takes away the identity category part yes. of it, and you just become yeah. a bunch of very different comedians, and your difference is highlighted actually in the context of it being a showcase of sameness. Mm. Actually, what you see is the variety. Yeah. And I think it cultivates variety as well because you see what other people are doing and if they're doing something similar, you want to change your thing even more. That said, if somebody books me as a woman on a women's showcase, I get really annoyed mm. because I'm like, that's not the thing about me that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. That's not the thing about me that I want you to notice. Yeah. Why are you selecting me along this vector yeah. that I don't find interesting? <laughs> So it's a tricky, it's a tricky sort of position to be in because I think women's nights are good. Yeah. And when I do them, I enjoy them. But if somebody books me for them, it annoys me. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> I love doing queer lineups and I love doing Welsh lineups. Yeah. So I have the exact opposite feeling if someone books me for, for a gig where it's all going to be people like me in some way. I just think, oh, brilliant. <laughs> what a nice thing. Yeah, probably because you're more secure in your identities than I am. <laughs> well, I don't know, though. I mean, maybe. I mean, I, I, I think something I've learned a lot from you is to be a lot more open to the possibility of fluidity of identity. Um, I, I, I say on stage that I'm bisexual, I, and, and also I say it a lot publicly because I think like public visibility is really important. But also... I'm really open to the possibility that, you know, what if I'm not, or what if I'm something else, or what if I change in the future? Um, what if I'm pansexual? What if I'm, you know, I don't know, you know. You, you... Or, or what if that identity category is not relevant yes. to... Yeah, there's, there's things that aren't relevant. I mean, this is something I was thinking about the other day. Um, I'm doing my sixth Edinburgh show. Almost all of my Edinburgh shows end with like a big exploration of identity. Um, you know, my first show was about being a Welsh speaker and a second language English speaker. What does it mean to grow up in the UK second language? But like the language you speak is a, is a UK language. Um, second one's about my marriage. Third one is about my sexuality. Fourth one is about... Um, I guess that one's about escapism, actually. So that's sort of about sort of about being a stand-up, really. But I, I never say that because um, I want it to be. I wanted to work for people who are not stand-ups. <laughs> um, fifth one is about not having children uh, and the decision to not have children. Um, and then the one I'm doing this year. It, well, it's a mystery. I don't want to tell. <laughs> <laughs> Come and see it at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And I and so what I was thinking was. If I just keep doing shows, like how far down the list of important identities am I going? Um, when do I do a show about me having asthma? A thing I have never <laughs> spoken about because it's not <laughs> important or relevant. And yet it is important. You know, I, I have to have my medicine with me at all times. The asthma is relatively severe. Um, but, you know, 13 years of doing stand-up, I haven't written a single line about it. Because why would I? <laughs> it's, just, it's not. It's so unimportant to me. Yeah. But then it's interesting when I see... You know, there are comics with asthma who will talk about it and have a joke about it, and I think, oh, that's Oh, that's the thing. You can make a joke about it. That's yeah. a thing that can be important to you. Yeah. Because it, it, that's a really fascinating question, because that is relevant to you. That identity is actually relevant to your day-to-day -day life in ways that other identities that you hold more closely might not be relevant to your day-to-day yeah. -day life. Uh, and that's a fascinating thing. What what. It's not even what you choose to find important, what you do find important. Yes. You only have a certain amount of control over what you find important. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's an interesting, it really is an interesting question because, you know, identity nowadays is so many different things. And one of the things that I find myself constantly wrestling with is the ways in which online identity the creation of a self as avatar online limits and controls what i would think of as real identity mm. and that i'm saying as somebody who like did a lot of escapism online when i was a teenager like yeah. i would go into the computer room at, at lunchtime or the library at lunchtime i'd read fantasy novels or i'd go on chat rooms and pretend to be you know mm. a 43 year old divorcee in texas like mm. Oh, I met that guy. Was that you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, just all of those kind of versions of, of self, performed self, 
which online, I think there's this great thing where you can perform a self online that is safer and happier than the outside version of yourself, particularly if you're a teenager or unhappy in your real life. Mm. But I also think it's really dangerous to have someone create an avatar like that that feels more real than themselves. Yeah or sort of retrospectively shapes who they think they ought to be in real life mm. or who they think they are in real life. I think there's a certain type of person that believes consistency is really important and that if you're the sort of person who goes online and talks violently and aggressively about injustice, then you must also be willing to talk just as violently in real life over the over the dinner table with your family or to strangers. Yes, and 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 in some ways, like I, this is the thing that when I say I'm wrestling with it, I I kind of see the ways in which it's good and the ways in which it's bad because it can give people a vocabulary for addressing injustice. It can give people the bravery of knowing that there's a team of people behind their backs if they feel isolated in their small town or in their family, that they can have the courage to voice these opinions. They can have the words to voice these opinions to or to express an identity or to identify themselves with a group. And at the same time, I sort of think it's not it's not fair or right for anyone to... I, like, I loathe writing a bio. Mm. Or, you know, because why would I define myself in that yeah. way? You know, yeah. that, that that's what I am. These are, these are the 150 words that describe me. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I don't, I, well, uh, that, that's weird to me. That's creepy to me. Because what if it's not... It just doesn't... Almost by definition, nailing it down makes it not true. Yeah. Because personhood is so much more inchoate than that, so much more malleable than that. Something might be important to me in one moment that isn't important to me in the next. Yes. (laughs) And so to say, no, this is who I am, this is what's important to me, these are the the most important aspects of my identity that are at the foreground of who I am... So this is something. So in my new show, I'll give a little bit of it away. Um, this is this is something I do because a lot of my show this year is about um, it's it's about what you choose as your identity. I suppose I think I talk a lot about um, you know you do you do a test yourself for ADHD test online and uh, it gives you permission to consider yourself to have ADHD uh, and that, there we go. That's an identity and that's an in group. You can find other people with ADHD and. Um, you know, maybe you find a group where all you talk about is how, oh, I just keep behaving incredibly appallingly, damn ADHD, or you find one where just every single aspect of your life is filtered through the lens of it, and you go, uh, you know, just just everything that you do, you assume must be a function of this particular. Oh yeah, identity. I don't I don't like being in loud crowds. That's a that's an ADHD symptom. Mm. I don't I have particular aversions to particular kinds of foods. That's an ADHD symptom. That kind of yeah. thing where you where you pathologize your own life. And I think the so one of the things that's important to me is this idea of fluidity of identity and being able to sort of. I don't know. I think you can be allowed to talk really firmly, really strongly. So something I'm doing on purpose in this show, I was uh, late coming out. I came out in my late 20s. Maybe that's not late by some standards. But um, in this show, I claim that I have known, you know, since I was 12. And there's a joke about someone, I, you know, about me explicitly fancying a man at the age of 17. you know, I definitely had attraction to men at that age, but that, but I was, you know, there was a lot of denial. Like, I definitely was not so confident, as confident as I'm pretending to be, which is a sort of observation you only, you can only understand if you've seen previous work of mine in order to have that piece of information. Mm. So I, I thought, well, it also needs something that allows someone who's only seen this to understand. Um, so what I've got is just the idea that my guy, um, I always think of, like, who I play on stage as, like, the character you know like a video game character you yeah your avatar my avatar that's my avatar so my maybe that's why i resent the bio because i usually get an hour to explain my (laughs) avatar um so my guy hates scrabble and loves wordle in just ideologically um incompatible ways um i don't make that I don't make that point myself I allow that to be a thing that the audience can pick up on I think of it as like untied shoelaces those two strings dangle down and if you choose to notice them you can go oh interesting yeah Um, because yeah I think 
I think there's great value in being able to be different in different situations. Um, I think of Owen Jones, the journalist, sort of being called out because um, I, th- I think he'd done a um, he'd he'd given a presentation to grassroots Labour Party members where he said, you know, if we work hard enough, we can win 90% of the seats. 90% of the seats um, in this country could go Labour. But then he'd, um, you know, had a meeting with journalists where he'd basically made the same points, but the number was much lower, something like, you know, I I believe 60% of seats can go Labour. And people were like, oh, look at this just inconsistent man. And you go, well, yes he's an activist there is power in being allowed to be inconsistent Mm. you say 90% to the grassroots people because they want as close to 100 as possible journalists are frightened they want as close to 50% as possible Um, and I think the internet does not allow a level of I think I think I think we should have the right to be inconsistent sometimes on purpose yeah I think that's a really interesting point I think if you understand public speaking as rhetorical then those kind of statistical anomalies or the use of different numbers sort of to make the same point. I think, but it's also dangerous now because anything you say in any context can be made universal or worldwide immediately. So that that you can't, I would say that Owen Jones should have said those numbers to different people in the context of privacy. Mm if he wanted to, them to perform the function that he wanted them perf- to perform. Yeah. But in a context where you can cross the streams, yeah. that undermines the power of that yeah. as a rhetorical device. But to like take a few steps back to their ADHD thing, I, I was t- we were talking about this before. And, you know, I've definitely got some of those qualities and traits. And mm. if I read any of those kind of articles about what it's like to have ADHD, I'm like, oh, yeah. I think partly they're written to do that. Yes, yeah. To draw in as many people into this self-diagnosis as possible, you know, and, and where it's very damaging and weird and bad is like, do you hate the sound of nails on a chalkboard? You have trauma. Yeah. That's a sign of being traumatised <laughs> from your childhood. That kind of stuff, I think, is really messed up. Yeah. Um, the sort of pathologization of quite normal aversions or fears or reactions or behaviours. Um, I think that's really... up upsetting and worrying to the point where it's like you know all of that like dream therapy stuff and the satanic panic of the 90s where yes. you can basically convince anyone mm. to build a memory that is completely false and then they feel that it's their memory and they've built the memory as a result of your kind of guiding prompts do you remember any dark experiences when you were young it's probably an indication when you're abused by somebody who do you think who do you, when you remember somebody in your childhood what, what does that all of that stuff horrendous because once you've built that memory and this is the terrible thing about that satanic panic thing yeah you can't deconstruct the memory yeah even if you find out for a fact with evidence that it didn't happen it could never have happened you people are suggestible particularly with that kind of dream Mm. therapy stuff and that hypnosis stuff enough that you can build a false memory Mm. that then remains in your head forever so do you think that people create like how similar is it when you think i relate to all this adhd diagnostic criteria because you're not necessarily creating a memory but so no i think I, I, i'm kind of trying to maybe i'm making too many points at once here <laughs> the first one is i think that online these kind of self-diagnosis things are often really useful and really good because they go oh yeah i, I recognize myself in that there are strategies i can use to help me with, deal with my own stuff um which is great. That's a fantastic thing. But for example, if I had had that resource when I was miserable working at a law firm, I might have been persuaded, because I was so miserable working at a law firm, I might have been persuaded to go see a doctor, get a diagnosis, get medicated, and then I might still be at that law firm. Yeah. Which would have been the wrong thing. Mm. The pain signals I felt from being there and trying to make my brain do that kind of work Yeah, were good and accurate and useful pain signals that said get your hand off that stove yeah yeah and find another path in life and Mm. and if i hadn't felt that pain if i had numbed out that pain or medicated that pain away then i would be a much less happy and fulfilled person now yeah i'm almost certain not that you can live that other life i think 
Um, so this, so, so I'm thinking about this. This is quite Sorry new. to back up. And then the other point oh, no. was about the dangers of online. I understand that. Yeah. So like, well, like, well, I kind of like this idea of um, you know something I've become very suspicious of is um, you know I only found out maybe two or three days ago. How, like what percentage of quizzes online and all this test yourself ADHD stuff um, is funded by pharmaceutical companies I absolutely you know I, th- I have ADHD I believe but I say that because ADHD is the phrase we have for it but I don't like the idea that we consider it a disorder you know it's a way my brain works I don't know what it is in fact you know you can't measure it um, the comedian Benji Waterstone so he's a psychiatrist I want to say but he, you know he sort of pointed out the only thing you can see physically in a brain is you know dementia and Alzheimer's everything else is just we observe and we come up with our best theory so who knows what ADHD really is. Maybe there is the part, a part of the brain that is more efficient in some brains, less efficient in others. Uh, maybe it releases a certain hormone and 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 the result of that is bah, like the way that ADHD people are. But is that a disorder or is that... I mean, it feels more to me like there are different... Everyone falls somewhere on various spectrums. Mm. Everyone's got all of these... Um, if you think of a soundboard or a yeah. lighting board, everyone's got all the sliders mm. and everyone's sliders are adjusted differently. So yeah. the volume on your ADHD type things might be up and your volume on your sociopathy things might be down or yeah. you know, all of those things that when they're slid all the way up to the top make you non-functional, which mm. is sort of the definition really of it as a disorder is where it interferes with your day-to-day life yeah. to the point where you cannot function normally. Yeah. But, you know, there's, there's, you're probably somewhere along that slider mm. below the non-functional level, except yeah. on some days yeah. when you haven't had enough sleep and something, something, something. And then all that other days you might be right down and you've got coping strategies to help you move the slider and have some level of control. And I think unless you're somebody who's got whatever the slider is stuck at the top of that yeah. spectrum. Mm most of the time it's probably not wildly worth seeing I don't know I don't know because again yeah this is a tricky one because again if you have a community of people and you're like yeah we're all these people and we want um we want to be taken seriously and my workplace is better if you let me take a walk every hour or whatever yeah you know do you have to characterize that as a disability in order to be given the allowances that make you able to operate yeah, sometimes you need to identify as a political class. Yes. And that is tricky when the people who agree with you are pharmaceutical companies going, yes, 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 you are a special group of people. Buy these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Not, not, and, and I have absolutely... Uh, like, I, just, I don't know anything about the medication, so this is not an anti-medication point, because I don't know, but it's. I, th- I think it's very interesting to understand... The, a lot of this is a marketing campaign for people who are selling types of medication, regardless of what you think of the medication itself. Yeah, well, that you know that for some people it is the absolute solution to their problems, and for other people it is probably going to let them stay at a law firm for another 20 years, mm. and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. You know, for me it was a good thing because yeah. I had comedy, because I was good enough at making money from comedy quickly enough that it wasn't an insane thing to do, that I had in the back of my head the knowledge that I... If everything went wrong, I could move back in with my parents, that luxury and privilege. Um, All of those things made me medicating a bad idea and that I don't, you know, value the things that that kind of money can buy. It it wouldn't make me happier to get a facial once a month. I I remember talking to a friend of mine who was equally miserable in the law firm and Mm. I was like, why don't you just quit? And she said, because I want to get a facial every month and I like Mm. to get my nails done and I I want to live in this nice place and I want to have a swimming pool. And for me, those things wouldn't appreciably... If I can can go out for brunch every now and then, Mm. like that's kind of... Mm my level of luxury yes (laughs) you know for me if i can't go out to brunch then i feel yeah constrained and a little bit poor yeah but for me like being able to go out for brunch like once a week or once Mm. a fortnight yeah anything like that's gravy that's me being happy in life you know i always think when i had uh i had an office job before i did stand up and in those days i had this absolutely vast collection of video games um, for the Nintendo Wii, uh, and now uh, I'm a stand-up comedian. I have a very a relatively small collection of video games for the Nintendo Switch, but oh, that collection's better 
because it's I, I still get the best ones. Yeah. And you know, video games are you know like I only have so many so much time to spend on them. If I have fewer of them but they're all but they're really good, that's a better way to live a life anyway. Well yeah. But so this being the point of like if you for example, didn't have that safety net that I had, and if you weren't wired in the way that I'm wired, which I'm not claiming as any kind of virtue, it's like up to upbringing and genetics and all of that stuff. Um, you know, if if either you had a family su- to support at a younger age than I have, um, or you had you know no safety net, or you'd come from a background of poverty where having money made you feel much more secure in a way that like was really important to your mental health then maybe the medication is the right call yeah okay for you. yeah i see but for me it was absolutely not the right call yeah um and so i'm glad that i was in an age where there was stigma about that stuff. Like, that, <laughs> was that luck of the draw or what? You know, or maybe it was just self-preservation. Maybe mm-hmm. I had a sense of it. Or maybe it was because I was brought up Buddhist and had coping mechanisms on the meditation side of things that meant that I never got to the point where my life was out of control because of the way my brain works. Mm. Who knows? Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a really interesting mix of things. But, yeah, I feel like... It is one of those things where people are people and people will take with both hands what you give them and run with it. So there's people I know who have been diagnosed with whatever Mm. and then they use it as an excuse to just be unreliable bad friends. Yeah. Yeah. Which is sad. Mm. Yeah. Because they they weren't unreliable bad friends before the diagnosis. Yeah. And now they are. Mm. And maybe subjectively for them individually, it feels better because they're not shaming themselves and lashing themselves and and abusing themselves into performing these social functions because they feel like they're broken. But now they have the diagnosis and they're like, oh, I find it difficult to perform these functions. Yeah. And that's because I have this problem, which means that I don't have to perform the social functions. Yeah. Subjectively, that might actually feel better for them to give themselves the permission to not do those things. But from the perspective of me being the friend who you just cancelled on for the fourth time in a row Mm. at the last minute when I'm already at the place. Yeah, there's... I suppose all of us are constantly um, in a position of going... You know, on some level, we think, uh, what is the best thing for me to do for me right now? What serves me the best? Uh, But also, what is my responsibility to others? Uh, What's best for me right now is to drop this litter in the middle of the street, because otherwise uh, the bin is out of my way. Uh, But what's best for um, the people for whom I'm responsible, other people in this street, is for me to go to that bin. Um, and, And how you make that call... Um, an ADHD diagnosis can make you go, oh, you know, sometimes I think it can be introspective. You go, I hadn't realized how hard I find it to perform these social functions. Maybe it is incredibly difficult. Maybe maybe that was taking a toll that we were not aware of. But equally, um, I mean, friendship is difficult. You know, what what do you expect of your friends? Yeah, how much are you willing to invest in your friends? I have a, a friend um, and he recently, so he works at a games company and he is my age, but he is the oldest of the people who he is in a social circle with. Mm. Uh, so they are what you would call Gen Z and yeah. he is what you would call a millennial. Mm. And he went on a retreat with them. And he said it was amazing because they've all been brought up to be in touch with their feelings and be very um, strong on boundaries. Mm. And as a weekend away, it meant that they did no communal activities. Because people would just say, I want to eat now. And then they would make themselves dinner. Or I want to go for a walk. Mm. Or I'm going to have a nap. Mm. I'm not up for this. When actually that kind of forced fun element yeah, yeah, yeah. of no one really wants to go for like a mm. one hour bush walk but we're all going to do it and then once you start doing it mm. you f- actually find you have quite a nice time and the experience is kind of yeah. a really beautiful one and things happen that would not have otherwise happened there are great rewards to be had from being forced out of your comfort zone yes or not even forced but sort of pressured or yeah. that kind of 
yeah, this is so this is a really, again, interesting and tricky thing to discuss because obviously you don't want anyone to feel like their boundaries are violated. Yeah. But, you know, we've all been at Christmas with our families. <laughs> we all know what it's like to go, fine, I'm going to do this allegedly fun thing. Yeah. And then it's not very fun for a while. Yeah. And then it becomes fun and then it yeah. stops being fun yeah. and you push through and everyone else is having fun and that makes you feel happy. Mm. Or maybe everyone else is pretending to have fun yeah. and you're all making yourselves happy by thinking you're making each other happy. Like, yeah. But there but is something to be said for those fuzzy lines, you know. I think th I've been thinking about this uh, in terms of art as well. I'm watching a lot of shows at the Edinburgh Festival. The difference between something that has value in the moment and something that has value because it happened to you in the past. There are some books that I really enjoyed reading. There are other books I'm really glad that I have read. <laughs> They're not always the same books. There are there are books I loved reading in the moment. I've never thought about them since. There's shows I've seen up here that were a blast. I loved it. I was so I was just enchanted from start to finish. Uh, and then afterwards I haven't thought about it since mm. I don't think that means the show has no value at all um, but I also think I saw you know I have seen shows I'm thinking of a show I saw in particular which objectively was not very good I think um, lot, lots of problems with it very messy but afterwards every time I think of it I'm so glad I saw it it was and and of course sometimes work is brilliant but difficult to sit through and you know um, I remember seeing the film uh, Us the Jordan Peele film mm. um, and I'm a terrible wimp at horror films and normally I watch them at home where I can sort of pause when need be and I went to see that in the cinema and I got through it by thinking to myself when this is over I will be so glad that I have seen it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it is. It, so that's a really interesting thing. And then again, it gets more tricky when it comes to things like, um, you know, what's commonly called responsive desire. Mm -hmm. So in the context of relationships, um, you know, and it's generally attributed to women, but it's not a, a, a women-y thing specifically. Some people uh, get horny <laughs> and want to bang and other people sort of need to commit to the process mm. and then get into it yeah which in a sort of in the current discourse yeah doesn't really match the kind it's of it's hard to give enthusiastic consent if you're like look i'll be into this in a minute yeah 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 okay yeah sure it's thursday night let's do it and then you'll have a good time mm -hmm. but yeah that kind of the idea of romance i think has done people a disservice in that mm. way the idea that romance sort of sweeps in and carries you off your feet and that that um yeah i i think that's a really interesting question as well i th i think it's i think we're back to like inconsistency you know i think the right of people to be inconsistent um like in a lot of a conversation around boundaries, I'm going to move away from consent because that feels like probably a thornier yeah. issue. But I mean, it is a thornier issue, which is, uh, I guess, why why I brought it up. And then you, I was like, yeah. no, it's too thorny. <laughs> <laughs> too tired. Um, well, I suppose just because I think it's so, so broad. Because, yeah, and there are yeah. so many pricks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Comedy. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I think, like, boundaries, you know, um, like you did this thing uh i didn't like it but w what do you mean like when um uh you know that typical thing two people start flirting um uh, they end up kissing the next day one of them regrets it what you know how much of that like like you know if you were into it at the time and afterwards were like i'm not glad that happened that's yeah. very different from having a horrible time at the time. And not being able yeah. to say, well, sort of to take it again back into a realm of art, um, what if you, this is an interesting one, what if mm. you are made to laugh at something yeah. by the structure of a joke yeah. or by the vibe of the room or by the mm. fact that it was objectively funny that you then afterwards feel you wished mm. you hadn't been made to laugh at that. Yeah. And I, the one that I think about often, so I do writer's workshops for my Patreon people, mm. and I occasionally get stand-up comedians. And one of the, one of the very easy um, traps for a, an open mic or a new stand-up comedian to fall into is making fun of themselves. Yeah. About things that they're not actually okay with. Mm. 
And this is a real trap because if you see this and you'll see, like if you've ever seen very much uh, open mic comedy, you will recognize this. You might not have articulated it to yourself, but somebody, say somebody who is, um, is uh, overweight, making fat jokes and the audience laughs and you can see the person who has just made the joke take that laugh as confirmation of mm. abuse that they have received in the past yeah and be hurt by the laugh yeah be actually wounded by the fact that the audience has agreed with the proposition that they have made yeah. in the context of the joke that they look like a pudding or whatever yeah. the audience laughs they go oh, i do look like a pudding it hurts their heart and mm. then the audience immediately feels unsafe yeah and resentful because mm. you, they didn't want to hurt you yeah and you just made them hurt you. Yeah. And like maybe that comes back around to consent of mm. like, wait, wait a minute. That was something that blew my mind as, in, as getting into comedy because I was a big comedy fan before. I absolutely always believed that every single thing that happens on stage is completely within the control. You know, I thought I could trust comedians. <laughs> I thought, um, you know, if they say a joke that's like a bit edgy... I can trust that they thought whether it's okay, and I can laugh at it. Yeah. That part of this is the age, you know, like when I was a teenager, like it, the the discourse was very different around how comedy is. I think people now are much more. Well, there was ironic edginess then yeah. in a way that wouldn't be acceptable now. There were people who were saying things because, and it was it was one of the strains of humour that was very prevalent, very normalised, that you would say things because you all knew. Mm that no one meant them. Yeah. And it was sort of part of that, like it was a, a holdover, it was in the, in the 2000s, but it was sort of a, a tip over or a holdover of that 90s utopianism. Mm. And I think it's the same thread from which like your Star Trek kind of next gen, all of that happened in that context of like we're past this. Yeah. Or we're going to be past it or we're so close to past it that we don't have to worry about it anymore. Mm. And that was an illusion created by the culture. Of course, these you know inequalities in society were still existing, and these kind of jokes were perpetuating them. Yeah. But the pretense was, or the agreement was, that you could pretend they weren't an issue anymore. Yeah. And therefore, you could make a dwarf-throwing joke mm. in a movie, in a mainstream movie, and no yeah. one would blink. You know, because it wasn't the same as yeah, because the actual yeah. bigotry. Mm. Because we all knew that it, you were only doing it because it was outrageous. Yeah. And then that obviously, I think the internet really shifted that discourse because it gave the voices mm. back to the marginalised people who were like, no, actually you haven't solved the problem. Yeah. So you don't get to make light of the problem yet. Mm. Yeah. The comedian Jake Baker makes a really good point. So he was he went on holiday to Hong Kong when he was very young. Uh, and received some racial abuse. Jake is white. He was on a train. A woman basically chased him off the train, saying, you know, we don't want white people on this train. Mm. Um, and he was sort of pushed off. And apart from the inconvenience, he just wasn't hurt by this at all. He found it kind of funny. Because in his youth, um, you know, this didn't hurt him. You know, mm. this this wasn't going to... And who knows, you know, maybe maybe if he'd stuck around and had more experiences like that, he would have started to become increasingly scared of them. But as it was... Well, and the, also uh, if that level of abuse was it was a representative of or reminder of worse potential abuse and of abuses that were perpetuated at people who were like him. Yes. You know, if yeah. he had heard that week of ten other people who'd been pushed onto the train tracks for mm. being white, yeah. maybe that would have felt like a much more upsetting interaction. Yes. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so, yeah, so... Jake tells this story because, you know, he has this point that if you're not affected by it, bigotry is absurd to you and therefore just a really fun toy to play with rhetorically. Mm -mm -mm. That a lot of edgy comedy comes from just, what, this is hilarious. <laughs> the, the idea that you would judge someone based on something so arbitrary, it, it, it can, you can be very playful with it. So for me, it was fascinating going to New York where I sort of more or less started stand-up. I'd done it once or twice at Sydney Uni before, but I hadn't really done it as a thing. That the kind of the racial politics of America, because I was never really a pop culture person. I didn't watch a lot of movies. The movies I watched tended to be old movies, and I read books. But I wasn't really in touch with modern mainstream 
stuff and to how much of the New York stand-up at the time that I was there, 2009, was just about racial stereotypes that I had never heard of. And have that was a very surreal experience of like, I don't think I had ever heard the idea of Mexican people being lazy mm. until I seen it until I'd seen it in stand-up being made fun of by a Mexican stand-up yeah. on stage as a way of kind of deconstructing that trope or playing with that trope or leaning in or a way to and I was like that was really interesting to me mm. because yeah to kind of get it from that end of the mm. food chain yes yeah um, I, I love watching stand-up from other countries and a few years ago I watched, um, I think it was in Hindi um, but I watched uh, this 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 special and you know once, you know, it was subtitled but there were certain jokes where I was reverse engineering the stereotype from the punchline. Yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> the, that. Yeah. Um, the punchline was very um, you know, beca because it was a shared assumption, you know, it'd be joke about, and the punchline is, this person is from such and such a city. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's no need, there's no need to add on, which means that they are blank, uh, <laughs> whatever, the, whatever the adjective is. Yeah. But you could, you could immediately work out what it was because you've heard a thousand of those jokes and you know which area of the UK would have led to that punchline. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, one of the things that happened when I did, I think it was, oh, I can't remember what show it was, at the Chinese Museum in Melbourne. Um, I, I went after a Chinese language lineup comedy mm. show. So I'd be backstage getting prepped for my show while there was this uh, stand-up comedy show happening in Chinese. Um, and I don't speak, I did a year of Cantonese in year seven of high school and then dropped out. Yeah. Um, so I don't understand at all. But I could hear the rhythms of the jokes. Mm. And that was fun. That was yeah. really fun. That the, the stand-up cadence is sort of mm. the same. Because I do stand-up in Welsh as well. I always see, I always think, oh, I've watched so much stand-up in another language. But, and I suppose I have in specials. But actually, I don't think I have ever seen live stand-up in, in another language. But um, but yeah, it is always like so, so, so much of it is the rhythm of it. So much of it is guidance, and it's a big thing that um, you know friends of mine are starting to come to Edinburgh. You know, this is my sixth solo show. I've got friends you know here for maybe the first or second time. Um, so you know, giving them notes is really fun because that thing of, oh, I've got a year to write loads of new material in one go. I'm not used to that. The first time I came here, it was just with the best stuff I had. And what I'm really, and, and, and they fall into traps that maybe they haven't fallen into for years because they have this honed perfect stuff and now it's woof, all the new stuff. Um, and one of the thing is like, I think this is like credited to Dara O'Brien as an invention. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's a version of it that's older. But you know that trick where you sort of, you get to the end of a punchline and bam, and then instead of stopping for the punchline, you you just start saying the start of the next sentence. Yes. And allow the laughter of the audience to interrupt you. Yes. And that's when we found the body. So now you've got to... And you allow the interruption. Yeah. And, you know, when Dara O'Brien does this, when, when most comics do this, the purpose of that is, well, if I stop there, it's brutal. Yeah. And it's too much. And the audience maybe doesn't laugh at it or or, or maybe get, goes against me and goes, oh, my God, what's that joke? Um, so we move away from it. We start the next sentence. So it sounds like, oh, that wasn't even a joke at all. Don't worry about that. That was just a passing observation. And so the dawning realization of what's been said is what gets the laugh. So you would use this when the... And the idea that you didn't think it was a punchline. Yeah. Yeah. So the... So you would do this if the subject is taboo or if it's divisive. So if the if it's a joke about religion, you might do that. Mm -hmm. But it's so common for comics producing new work to do it just anyway. To just, walk away from a punchline because yeah. they're not confident in it. Yeah, and and perhaps because, I mean, I suppose it is lack of confidence. But and and it's because I'm unconfident. I'm just going to talk the way I think stand-ups talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so well, I had a really interesting thing with this show, which we should wind up because I've got to get prepped for my show, um, uh, which was I had a, a row of 14-year-olds in the front row mm. on about day three. Yeah. And I f A, I went longer. I went, yeah. ran over time. And B, um, 
I really slowed the role of the show mm. in order to include them. I didn't realise how many of my jokes sort of relied on a, an assumption that the audience would get it. Yeah. And yeah. so then I could just, yeah, as you say, drop the punchline and walk away. Mm. But kind of having to, it felt like the first 15 minutes of the show was a bit more used car salesman. Mm. Of like, <laughs> this is what comedy is, this is how the joke lands, this is kind of leaning into the punchlines in a way that I w- yeah. wouldn't have otherwise. Mm. And then I realised it actually works really well for this show because this show is about becoming increasingly vulnerable yes. as you go and dropping those levels of persona yeah. and the protections of mm. your kind of assertions and, and yeah. declarations and walking closer and closer to an uncomfortable truth or an uncomfortable realisation. Mm. And so actually it worked really well for the show. And yeah. that's that was quite a good experience to have these like absolutely beautiful little innocent eyes looking at me like what is, what, what, what is this <laughs> um since we're finishing i want to ask you then like what like like what is your avatar like do you think she's the same in every show <sighs> that's an interesting question she's more provocative than i am in real life mm-hmm. um sort of more mischievous, more reveling in discomfort Mm. than I am in real life and in that way braver. Mm. Um, What else? I have more kind of tonal variation. Mm. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Don't we all? Yeah, I, 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 I probably... No, I think in real life I do abrupt left turns quite a lot. Yes. <laughs> um, but, yeah, on stage that'll often be one of the things. And I think that originally arose from an insecurity of, like, well, if you don't like this, then there's something else coming. Yeah. You know, I'll do a different kind of comedy now. I'll do, you know, the ad section or I'll do a song. Yeah. I'll, you know, if you don't like what I'm doing, I'll mm. change it every five minutes or I'll change the subject or change the tone. Um, and But that has sort of then become something I like about yeah. the way that I perform which is that it looks like it's haphazardly put together yeah but actually it is very solidly built it's like yeah. one of those um balance towers of stones or something mm. or a, a dry stone wall where you're like yeah. how is this possibly standing up but actually it's very stable yeah and then you step back and all of a sudden there's a construction that mm. looked like it was just someone dropping stones yeah but actually it's so mine is incredibly in- intricate this year last year the show was basically 10 topics mm. um this year it's 33 uh, it's so so intricate and of course it's so so easy to forget a bit as you go but because i wanted to talk about basically i, I think to play fair with the audience i think i want them to know that i have adhd and that that is a, the thing that's important to me um so actually when i forget a bit and then just pick it up later and go oh i forgot to say this it looks like creative choice to sell the idea of ADHD in the performer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Where can people find you online or uh, in Edinburgh? Um, I'm on Twitter at Stalin for as long as that exists. Uh, and find me in Edinburgh at 11.45 in the morning. Uh, it's a free entry show um, and it is at the Mash House in the Cask Room. Uh, it's brilliant. It is the only thing on at that time that isn't shit. I haven't checked. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Go see Stefan. Uh, he always has a brilliant show. And yes, look him up online if you are not in Edinburgh, which most of you are not. I'll talk to you again next week. You're having tea with Alice. Thanks for having tea with me. Oh, do you know, or oh, do you not, this dolphin mistress that we have got? Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps the dolphins at every frame. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day.